Next Sunday, I'm going to be on vacation. Uh, we uh, got a permit to go down to Thunder River. The only issue is, will my body get me down to Thunder River? And as they say when you hike in the canyon, uh, going in is optional, coming out is mandatory. So uh, that will be our adventure next weekend, Lord willing. And uh, on Tuesday, we're supposed to go with two of our grandsons down to have a supai if we can manage that in the rain. And uh, so should be an interesting week. But next Sunday, we'll have Youth Sunday. The high school worship team is going to lead. And Tom Bogus, our youth pastor, will be bringing a message. I think you'll be blessed. And uh, so please uh, make sure you're here. This morning... Uh, I want to read a fairly long passage in Acts, and I'm not going to be expounding on it verse by verse as my normal pattern is. Uh, If you want that, I have taught this section in our our church uh, website uh, when I went through the book of Acts quite a few years ago, but it kind of provides the backdrop for the message I want to talk about this morning on resolving differences doctrinal differences in local church. The setting is the early church. This is the first big doctrinal controversy that came up, and um, so it resulted in what's called the Jerusalem Council that met to discuss this issue. And the words will be on the screen or... um, Also, there's a printed outline you can follow the message with, and there are printed uh, sermons, the manuscript also you can pick up either now or later. Here's what happened. Verse 1, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the law or the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported to them all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, and direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter, and after There had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you and that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring back to Acts chapter 10 when God directed Peter to go to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius, a centurion, and um, they and all that he had gathered there came to faith. Um, starting again, uh, let's see, verse 8. 
And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. That's a crucial statement. Cleansing their hearts by faith. And now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his own name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. That's a quotation from Amos chapter 9. James concludes, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from the things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood for Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. You may remember a story I've shared with you before about a guy who was uh, stranded on the proverbial deserted island, and uh, a ship came to his rescue. Finally, the captain learned the man had been on the island for five years, And the captain noticed that there were three huts there. And so he asked the man, well, what what are these huts? And the man pointed to the first one. He said, that's my house. I live there. And the captain said, well, what's that second hut? And the man said, well, that's my church. And the captain said, oh, well, then what's the third hut? And the man said, well, that's where I used to go to church. And it's reported that he was a Baptist. Um, That story's humorous, of course, but... Actual church splits are never a laughing matter. They're not funny. When churches divide, invariably people get hurt. Uh, Some, I have seen, get so disgusted that they just drop out of any contact with a local church. I've even seen a few who are so disillusioned they abandon the faith altogether. Many, if not most of you, have been through church splits. If you've been here for the 25 years I've been here, we've seen a couple of mass departures from this church over various issues, and uh, uh, I take comfort in the fact that we are not unique. In the New Testament, Paul wrote to the churches of Corinth, uh, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossae. All of them have exhortations to unity to getting along together as believers in Christ. Uh, We saw last week that unity is very important to the Lord. 
because he died to secure it, and he says in John 17 that it is a major part of our witness to the world. And so, as we saw, we need to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3, and also grow to maturity so that we will attain to the unity of the faith as mature believers. Now, the question is, well, how do we preserve the unity of the Spirit and attain to the unity of the faith? Obviously, it's not an automatic process because we are all different. We all have differing backgrounds, differing levels of understanding Scripture, and so on. As you think about it, there are generally four different types of differences that happen in local churches or combinations thereof. There are doctrinal differences. Um, Certainly we know about those. There are personal differences where one believer wrongs another believer and they have a personal conflict. There are personality differences. Two people are just very, very different personalities and they don't get along. And then there are methodology differences where one person says, I think the Lord's work should be done in this way. Another person disagrees, no, it should be done in that way. Now, in this message, I want to focus on doctrinal differences. And then um, after I get back from my vacation week, I'll deal with some of those other um, areas of difference. The main idea here I want to communicate today is that resolving doctrinal differences in a biblical way is crucial for the sake of the gospel. Now, I hope nobody that comes here thinks this, but we live in a day where people think that doctrine is not important. Uh, It's not as important, for example, as love. Doctrine, they would say, well, that's good for theologians. They discuss it. They debate it, all of that. But I'm not into that stuff. Um, As was mentioned in our worship time, however, this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And that dispute, that division that happened, centered on some crucial doctrines where Luther and the other reformers challenged the Roman Catholic Church. They tried to invite dialogue to see correction. When that didn't happen, uh, there was a division. And today, even, some are calling for us to end the cause of division between Catholic and Protestant, and yet the same doctrinal division still exist and would have to be resolved. And so the first thing I want to point out is that doctrinal differences are crucial because truth matters. Think about this. What is the difference between the Jehovah's Witness who comes knocking on your door and he is trying to work his way into heaven, piling up enough good works, and you, who hopefully you believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and that he is the only way to heaven. What's the difference? I'm going to suggest the difference is theological. Now, maybe you say, well, no, no, that guy, he doesn't believe in Jesus, and I do. Have you ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness? Everyone I've talked to 
would affirm, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Uh, I have seen them say that. What is the problem? The problem is their Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. They believe in a Jesus who is a created being. The Jesus of the Bible is the eternal creator who spoke all things into existence. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things came into being through him and so on. And so the difference is theological. Now someone might still object and say, well, you know, doctrine is so divisive and isn't love the most important thing? Think about this. Say you have a friend or a loved one and they're about to drink a glass of water and you know that there was poison in that glass. They don't know that. Would you just say, hey, I love you, man. Well, I hope not. I hope you would say, don't drink that. That is deadly. That is deadly. You see, love doesn't ignore the truth. And it doesn't matter how sincerely he believes that that drink will replenish his body with water. You see, faith is only as good as its object, isn't it? You can believe, for example, that an airplane is going to fly, but if there's a major defect, that thing isn't going anywhere. It's going to crash. So faith is as good as its object, and drinking a contaminated glass of water in faith that it's good is going to kill you. And believing in a contaminated gospel that you think is good is eternally deadly. So we have to come back to truth. And to be saved, we have to believe in God's only way of salvation, which is the eternal Son of God, who was crucified for our sins, was raised for our justification, that we put our trust in him. Now, in the early church, this doctrinal controversy arose as the gospel spread from Jewish believers at first to Gentiles those outside the Jewish faith. Uh, The gospel moved north up through Samaria, and then some went up to Antioch, which was further in the north. And um, so it was different than in the church in Jerusalem, where almost everyone was either a Jew or a proselyte to the Jewish faith. So when the gospel spread north and then through beyond through the um, first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, many Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. Paul and Barnabas returned from the first missionary journey, and some men who we call Judaizers, they believed in Jesus, as even in our text it says in verse 5, some men who believed, but they believed that it was necessary to faith in Jesus to add circumcision and keeping the the Mosaic law if a person wanted to be saved. And they went and began to go to all the churches Paul and Barnabas had founded in Asia Minor, teaching this change to what these men had taught. And eventually, Paul wrote the letter of Galatians to refute them, and eventually these Judaizers came to Antioch. And in verse 1, we read what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, 
custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas had great dissension with them, and the church sent them and a small delegation to Jerusalem to try to get this matter cleared up with the apostles and the elders there in what was sort of the mother church. Um, The Jerusalem council comes together, and they affirm the same gospel that Paul and Barnabas had preached. As Peter says, uh, we believe that he cleanses their hearts by faith, the same as us. Uh, He says in verse 11, we believe we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they are as well. Um, The council goes on and asks the Gentiles to abstain from some things that were Uh, that would needlessly alienate the believing Jews. But the point I want to make here is is simply that Paul didn't see this as an unimportant doctrinal dispute, and he didn't say, well, you know, we all believe in Jesus, don't we? Let's just overlook the differences and come together in love and agree where we agree and set the other things aside. Doctrinal differences make a huge difference. And it doesn't matter how sincere. I think these Judaizers were sincere. They would say, hey, we believe in Jesus. We just want to preserve the centuries-old teachings of Moses. And that's all. But they were sincerely wrong. And Paul uh, didn't say, well, you know, unity has to trump love. Let's just, I mean, trump doctrine. Let's get together and love one another and set aside our differences. He is so strong, if you've read the letter to the Galatians, that in chapter 1 there he says, may these Judaizers be damned. He's very, very forceful in how he condemns their teaching. So correct doctrine then makes a huge difference. The second thing we need to understand is that doctrinal differences must be resolved in an attempt to preserve unity and yet not compromising the truth of the gospel. Uh, Unity is important, but unity can never trump truth because if the gospel is compromised, then the resulting unity is not the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit is that that is created when people truly believe in Christ when they are regenerated as new creatures. Otherwise, you can get together with a bunch of people who aren't all truly born again, and the unity you have is no different than, say, you would have at a service club here in town if you had some believers were there, some unbelievers, and they all agree we're out here to serve our community, fine, but it's not the unity of the Spirit. Unity has to be based on the truth. Jesus is often cited from John 17, uh, where he talks about, or John 13 as well, may everyone know that they're my disciples by their love for one another and all of that by their unity. But the unity Jesus was talking about was unity based on truth. He said, may they be sanctified in the truth. Jesus claimed that he spoke the truth. He said, in fact, I am the truth embodied. And when he had a chance to bear witness to Pilate in John 18:37, he said, "For this I've been born, and for this I've come into the world to testify 
to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He promised the disciples in the upper room that he would send to them the spirit of truth who would bring to their remembrance all that he had taught. So if people come to you and say, well, you know, Jesus set love above truth, they are simply mistaken. You can't have genuine biblical love without truth because if somebody is going on a path that will send them to God's judgment, it's not loving not to speak the truth to them. Uh, It would lead them to damnation, not to eternal life. Now, Paul, in addition to Jesus, Paul knew that if you preserve truth, I mean, you preserve love and peace, and you compromise truth, it's not genuine love and unity. A situation arose in, in, um, he refers to it in Galatians 2, it happened in Antioch, I think, there's debate among scholars, I think it happened before the Jerusalem Council, where Peter came to Antioch to visit. And at first, when he came, he ate with the Gentiles, which no strict Jew would do. But Peter had had that vision in Acts 10, where God told him to go to Cornelius and his household. So, no problem. He came, he ate with the Gentiles. Then, a bunch of Judaizers showed up in Antioch, and uh, Peter out of fear of them and wanting to please them, separated from the Gentiles. And even Barnabas joined with Peter. Okay, so you got two pretty impressive guys, Peter and Barnabas. And remember, it was Barnabas who first recruited Paul for mission and for ministry. And Paul goes up against them and confronts them in front of the whole church and says, you guys are are falling into hypocrisy and denying the gospel. And thankfully, both men recognized Paul was right, and they uh, came over to his side. Now, what I'm going to say now usually offends some people, so I want to say it carefully, and I want to say it in love, but I'm going to say it because it's really, really important, okay? We live in a day where this is very relevant because there is enormous pressure for Protestants to get together with Roman Catholics and set aside our differences and all be one big happy unified church. And many are saying, well, the Reformation was a mistake and we all share in common so many things, the Trinity, that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and so on. Um, Now again, People react emotionally to what I'm saying here, so please think with me biblically and and logically. There are true Roman Catholic believers, but they are believers in spite of what the Catholic Church officially teaches. And if you don't believe me, go online and look up Catholic beliefs. The Catholic Church teaches that we are saved justified by grace through faith in Christ. And you go, what's the problem? The problem is they don't stop there. They add, plus you got to get your own good works and build up enough merit. And then when you die, you go to purgatory. And if your loved ones pay enough money to a priest, he'll pray you out of purgatory. 
And so they're adding works to faith alone. Okay? It's the Galatian heresy. See, the Galatian Judaizers were saying, we're saved by grace through faith. Plus, you just need to keep the Jewish law. Add your works. The Catholics are saying, we're saved by grace through faith. But that's not quite enough by itself. You have to add your merit. I'm here to tell you that's not good news. Because when do you know you have enough? What if you die and you're a little shy? You know? I remember recently, a few years ago, when one of the popes died, the new pope said, we need to pray the pope out of purgatory. I mean, if the pope doesn't make it, who's going to make it? You know? And the good news of the gospel is, you can believe in Jesus Christ here today, and you are justified before God through faith in Christ. That's great news. Any sinner can come. Now, even the well-known and highly respected evangelist Billy Graham for many years played down any differences between evangelicals and Roman Catholics. Here are some quotes. He said, I have no quarrel with the Catholic Church. Wow. And speaking of the difference between evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism, he said, I don't think the differences are important as far as personal salvation is concerned. Makes me wonder, did he understand what they teach? He also often said, the one badge of Christian discipleship is not orthodoxy, but love. That's what I was talking about earlier. Truth doesn't matter. Love does. Well, watch them drink the cyanide-laced water. Truth doesn't matter. It matters greatly. But because of the powerful influence of Graham, and back in 1994, there was a situation where the um, Chuck Colson and uh, Bill Bright and J.I. Packer and Os Guinness and some other evangelicals, they signed a paper called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And it was an abomination. I've read Packer's defense of why he did it, and it's weak. But there was that movement to get us all together. Another well-known evangelical author named Ron Sider, here's what he dogmatically stated. It is sin to refuse to join in ecumenical dialogue and processes with other Christians who confess Jesus Christ as God and Savior. He said, it is a sin to send our missionaries to other lands with long Christian traditions without first consulting with the churches already there. And in the context, he was talking about Roman Catholic and and, uh, Orthodox countries. I I just am aghast at that comment. I've traveled in Mexico and Eastern Europe. I was standing in the cathedral, the Orthodox cathedral in Timisoara, Romania one day and just looking at the place and there are candles burning and there are people bowing down and praying to these icons. And here was this woman dressed very seductively and she's on her knees, tears streaming down her face, praying to this icon you know what an icon is it's a um, those 
It's not an idol, but it's a painting of a saint. And the priest walks by, and I couldn't speak Romanian, but I wanted to grab the guy by the lapels and say, go tell that woman that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And she can believe in Christ and doesn't have to pray to these icons to be saved, but he just walks by smiling, looks at her, and goes on his way. If you've been in those countries, you know that they are not preaching the gospel. Those people don't know the way of salvation by faith in Christ. And this is all very relevant to our own city even, where we're being urged again to join with Roman Catholics in prayer for our city. I'm all for prayer for our city, but we're we're asked to join with people who probably do not believe in the gospel. If they do, we need to have a conversation with them about why are they in that church. And if they don't, they need to hear about Jesus who can save them from their sins apart from their good works. Now, I'll be the first to say Christians have divided over some petty, ridiculous things, and we need to be discerning, and I'm going to try and pursue that in the next point. But what I'm saying here is there are times when it's a sin not to divide, and that is when the gospel is the issue. How we're saved has to be the unifying factor. So when doctrinal differences come up, then how do we work through it, trying to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? I think doctrinal differences can be resolved in a biblical way if we take the following steps. First of all, determine the magnitude of the controversy. Last week I pointed out you can generally divide doctrinal differences into three categories, and there's a little gray zone between them, but at the core are what we might call essential truth that is necessary for salvation. And if a person denies these essential truths, they don't understand the gospel. They are not uh, born-again people. They are into heresy if they knowingly deny these truths. You say, what are they? Well, first and foremost is the inspiration and authority of the Bible Uh, If the Bible is not our supreme authority, then how do you determine what's true? And again, today, even many Protestant churches are saying, well, the Bible's in error about abortion, homosexuality, the role of women in the church. Where do you stop once you start opening the door to questioning the truth of Scripture? Maybe it's in error about how we're saved. So the Bible has to be our authority, not the Bible and church tradition. Secondly is the Trinity. Uh, God is one God who exists eternally in three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. And to deny the Trinity is really to say Jesus lied because he taught it, Paul lied because he taught it. Again, that is essential. Another is the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, If he is not fully human, then he can't atone for human sin. If he is not fully God, then uh, his death on the cross would not satisfy the holy justice of God who demands the penalty be paid. And there are many, many scriptures that affirm both his humanity through the virgin birth and his deity, um, 
as eternal God. Another is the substitutionary death of Jesus that satisfied God's wrath as the payment for our sins. Jesus didn't just die as an example of love. He died as a substitute for sinners to bear the wrath of God for all who put their trust in him. And included in this truth is the fact we're all sinners. We all need a savior. Jesus is that only savior. Uh, Another is Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead and his bodily second coming in power and glory. Paul says, if Jesus isn't raised, our faith is worthless. We're still in our sins. He um, is coming back again. Otherwise, he lied, and again, we can't trust him. And then another essential doctrine is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, To be justified means to be declared righteous by God. And Paul is very, very clear. It is a gift. It is by grace. That is, we don't deserve it. And it is received through faith and not through works. Then, moving out from that core, and again, there's a little gray zone here that I'm going to mention, but there are what I would call important, but yet not saving truth. Um, And these issues are important because they affect how we live as Christians. They really do make a difference. But there are Christians on both sides of these issues and on holding differing views. But it affects how we understand God, how we understand human nature, man, salvation, Christian life, and so on. Uh, One that I would kind of put in a gray zone is the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell. I think that's a very important doctrine. The only reason I don't say it's essential for salvation is there was a highly respected man named John Stott, an Anglican pastor and author, and he, late in his life, um, denied the eternality of hell. Uh, I think that was a tragic mistake on his part, but I don't doubt his salvation. Other issues... Uh, God's sovereignty and human free will. I think that's really important. You know which side I stand on that one, but um, I'm not going to say those who disagree with me aren't saved. Uh, Another, baptism, church government, biblical prophecy, old earth, young earth, creationism, uh, charismatic gifts, roles of men and women in the church and in the home, Christians in psychology, divorce and remarriage. Those are all uh, important issues, but I'm not going to accuse those who differ with me as not being saved. And then moving still further out, there are issues that we might call interesting, but they're really not essential and they are not important. Um, And often there's a lot of debate on these things, but what I'm saying is whichever side you come out on, it's not going to affect how you live your Christian life. Uh, Some examples I mentioned last week, who are the sons of God in Genesis 6? Are they demons or were they human? Scholars debate that, but I guarantee you're not going to be different tomorrow whichever side of that you come out on. 
Or another one, when is the battle in Ezekiel 38? I don't know, and I don't know that it would change my life if I finally figured it out. Um, Or did Christ descend into hell? That's another debatable issue. So first of all, you have to decide, is this a core essential? Is it really important, or is it, nah, it's interesting, but it doesn't affect anything. Then, secondly, you have to check your attitude. We are all prone toward pride, and that means it's easy to defend the truth in the wrong way. We all want to be right and prove the other guy's wrong. And so we come in sometimes with a bulldozer. Now, Jesus and Paul both came on very, very strong on occasions. If you read Matthew 23, wow, Christ was swinging hard at the Pharisees. You read Galatians 1. Paul didn't mince any words with the Judaizers. So sometimes you do need to come on strong. But before you do that, check your heart. Check your attitude. And keep in mind these two scriptures. In Galatians, where Paul was writing against the Judaizers in chapter 1, he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, and that could be a doctrinal issue, Um, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So your goal going in is not to win. Your goal is to restore. And your goal is to help that person embrace the truth, but you do it with gentleness and with humility, recognizing I too could be caught in a trespass. The other scripture is 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, where Paul says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him, to do his will. And that text says basically you're not going to win a person to the truth by being harsh or, or um, judgmental or impatient or quarrelsome. You have to come in kindness and in love and recognize it takes people time, but if you come along in love next to them and say, could we look at Scripture together there is the possibility they will see the truth and come to it. So our motive is never, I'm going to prove I'm right, and I'm going to prove you're wrong. If you go that way, you won't win anyone. The goal is to win them back to the Lord and to glorify God as they embrace the truth. Now, what do you do if an essential issue is at stake? First of all, hear out the issue completely. Uh, The apostles and elders in Jerusalem, they heard the Judaizers, they heard Paul and Barnabas, they heard Peter, and then James before they came to a decision. And the bottom line is you got to make sure you really understand where the person is at. Don't assume it. Draw them out. Talk to them. Secondly, consider where they're coming from. There's a big difference between maybe, maybe the person doesn't even understand the gospel. They're brand new. And 
the Bible, and they aren't even clear on the gospel. Or maybe they're a young believer and they got some bad teaching somewhere. Okay, that's different than if they are um, more established in the faith, but they know what they what the truth is, and they are actively promoting error, trying to recruit people. With the first, with the, the newer believer, you, you act in gentleness. With the guy who knows better, you come on a little stronger and confront. Thirdly, you might need outside counsel if it's a major issue. Paul and Barnabas brought this issue back to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Sometimes I've had issues pastorally where I go, I don't know what in the world to do. And I've called other pastors and church leaders and gotten counsel. Fourthly, we have to insist Scripture is our final authority. James comes in and he quotes from the prophet Amos uh, and supports the testimony of Paul and Peter and Barnabas in uh, what they had to say. In verse 28, it says that the whole group concluded, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, they weren't saying, we all kind of got the vibes that the Holy Spirit was on our side. No, what they mean is the Spirit inspires God's word. And the Spirit inspired the way of salvation. And so they are affirming Scripture, again, as the final authority when they say that. Because you don't determine what is the mind of the Spirit by a subjective feeling. You determine it by the truth of the Word. Uh, Anytime I'm teaching on something and I can't find some godly Bible scholars who agree with me, I'm on thin ice. I back off, or at least... If I disagree, I really have to go back to the word, and then I even then I present my case very tentatively and let people know I'm kind of out on a limb here on this. And, of course, that's never on an essential truth, only on other matters. A fifth point is that concessions on minor issues may need to be made, but you never make a concession on a major truth major issue. Uh, In order not to offend the Gentiles here, I mean the Jews here, the Gentiles are asked to abstain from three things that violated the ceremonial law, things contaminated by idols, what is strangled and by blood. And then the fourth thing, fornication, is kind of difficult to understand. Why is that in the list? Because that's not a cultural issue. That is a moral issue that applies across the board. Probably why they added that was many of these Gentile converts were living in a cultural milieu where men frequently went to the temple prostitutes and men often had concubines and that was just accepted. And they didn't want needlessly to offend Jews that were hearing the gospel and they knew that that would be offensive and that maybe these new converts didn't understand that, so they threw that in. But the point is, uh, sometimes on non-essential matters, we need to make some concessions, but on essential matters, never. Um, Of course, moral purity is an essential issue. Uh, Number six, if a person persists in a major doctrinal error, we may eventually have to do church discipline. 
the goal is always to bring the person to uh, repentance and to the truth, but sometimes you get somebody that insists they are right on something that is going to damage the church, and after warning and following the steps of Matthew 18, they need to be removed from the church. Now, what do you do if it's an important but not essential issue where there's difference? Well, on those, first of all, the elders have to determine what course the church will take. And as you may know, our church has a position on uh, baptism, on the sign gifts, the role of women in the church and the home, uh, other issues. We recognize there are Bible-believing churches that differ from us on these things, but we have to be accountable to the Lord for the light he's given us. And so we take a stand as to how we understand those things. If the elders disagree among themselves after they've studied an issue and prayed and so on, it seems to me that those in the minority then either need to submit to the majority Uh, resign from being leaders in the church or go to another church. And hopefully it doesn't come to that. But sometimes there's just an issue you you disagree on. Twice now I have been asked to become the pastor of churches that had women as elders. And both times I said, thank you, but no thank you. I don't think I would be a good fit because I believe the scriptures teach that men should be in leadership in the church. And on one of the situations, the guy was really pressuring me, wanting me to come there. And I said, you know, if I come there, there's going to be a major church split. I said, you guys can deal with it on your own and then call a pastor. But if you deal with it because I'm coming, there's a major part of the church not going to like me and be responsive to my ministry And if I come in and change it, they they aren't going to like me and be responsive to my ministry. So if you're going to change it, you guys need to change it. I just think that's an area I can't compromise on. And so I didn't go to those churches or entertain uh, becoming their pastor. Now, what do you do if it's a minor issue? Well, here I think love and unity have to trump individual preferences because these minor third-level issues, it's really just a matter of, well, I think, I think, okay, it's not that crucial, and it's not worth fighting over. The Philippian church was having some controversy among them, and Paul wrote in Philippians 1.29, exhorting them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he's saying, you've got to be unified on the faith of the gospel. No budging. And then in chapter 2, he says on other issues, chapter 2 and verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. So on minor issues, set aside your preference and love your brother or sister. Sometimes in a church, you get a person who, what I call, majors on the minors. You know what that is? They, they have a minor doctrine that is their hobby horse. And they're going to go out and force it on everybody they can. And at some point, we just need lovingly to tell such a person, 
back off, you know? This isn't the issue. Often, the reason people major on the minor is not the doctrine. It's something subsurface. And often it's pride. They're the kind of person, they want to be right. And they want to prove they're right. And boy, they're going to prove it to everybody they can on this issue that's just not that important. And you have to address this sub-issue, the person's pride, before they'll drop the uh, majoring on a minor thing. Well, last week I concluded with a quote from one of my favorites, J.C. Ryle, and I'm going to give you another wise word from him as I conclude this morning. He was a 19th century Anglican pastor, a godly man. Here's what he said. Controversy in religion is a hateful thing. It's hard enough to fight the devil, the world, and the flesh without private differences in our own camp. But there is one thing which is even worse than controversy, and that is false doctrine tolerated, allowed, and permitted without protest or molestation. Three things, he said, there are which men never ought to trifle with, a little poison, a little false doctrine, and a little sin. Let's pray. Dear Father, give us wisdom in all these difficult matters to run the race set before us with faithfulness, with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Give us great wisdom in how to know, how to deal with those who differ from us on doctrines, to preserve unity when we can, to confront error when we need to. I pray, Father, if any are here who are under the false impression that by adding their good works they will get into heaven, that you would open their eyes to see that all the good works in the world will not atone for their sin. They have to believe in Jesus and that faith in him is the only way to eternal life. So give us truth and love and understanding of how they fit together in every situation, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.